The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to begin looking at uh, really the beginning of the ministry of Jesus this morning as we continue on. And what we're going to see in really actually one of the verses that we're going to cover today, we're going to start in verse 14, we're going to see in one of the uh, verses Jesus' first message that He preached. Um, I, I took a note to realize that Jesus preached His first message and it was really only one sentence. So pray for me, alright? Uh, that maybe, uh, but I, I remember my first message I preached. I can't remember the age, I think it was around 23 or 24. And I had the opportunity to preach in the little country church I had grown up in, in Newton County, Macedonia Baptist Church. And Larry Cheek, who many of you know, who is now our associational director for the Stone Mountain Baptist Association, was the pastor there. And so Larry, I had shared with him that I believed that God had a call in my life. And so Larry was gracious to give me an opportunity to preach my first message. Uh, he was smart enough to do it on a Sunday night, though. And uh, Psalm 1 was a very special and still is a very special psalm to me. And so I had taken, I don't know how many weeks to really just mull over Psalm 1 and prepare. And I was ready to go. And uh, I got in the pulpit and in less than five minutes I was done with everything that I had to say. Larry graciously came and rescued it, rescued me a little bit and added some meat to it so that I had one good illustration and I forgot everything else. Uh, but that was my first message. But when I think about Jesus' message, Jesus, God, uh, he's, he's declaring his, his very first message and the inauguration of his ministry really took place as we saw when he was baptized by John the Baptist, not for his own sin, but to identify with us. Aren't you glad that Jesus identifies with us? He was tempted in every manner just as we are, yet He was without sin. The writer of Hebrews says that He is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And so He's baptized and He's sent out to the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days as we looked at last week for the express purpose sent to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And then in verse 14, John writes, uh, Mark writes for us, Now after John was arrested, that is, John the Baptist, and the other gospel writers, and Luke in particular, we learned that John the Baptist had been arrested. He had paid the price, if you will, for preaching, and he was preaching against Herod, because Herod had taken his uh, brother's sister in marriage, and he was preaching of the unrighteousness that Herod the king was, was living under. And so Herod throws him in prison and he continues on. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look at the words of Jesus this morning in this very short text... Boy, there's so much that is there. God, we pray that, Lord, you would move in our hearts, God. That, Lord, we would adhere to what Jesus commands, gives imperatives in these verses as to when we trust Christ, what is absolutely necessary in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to live that out. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. In this brief passage, we're going to actually go through verse 20 this morning. We find that uh, there are really three imperatives that Jesus lays out here in the presentation of a gospel because He's encouraging, just as John did early on in the chapter, that we be a part of the kingdom of God by following, believing, trusting in the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus. And the three imperatives that we need to know that at that point of trusting the gospel, at that point of believing the gospel, that God calls us to repent, to turn from, to turn from the way that we're living, the world that we're living, what we're pursuing, our own desires, to turn from that, to do a U-turn literally and turn to God. So there's a, a herald that says, repent, turn from and turn towards God. It's not just a simple prayer that we might lead one in praying that does not save anybody. Amen? He says, repent. And then he says, believe. And we're going to look at the difference in what we might hear sometimes of what believing is and what Jesus meant when he says, believe in me. And then he says, to follow me. And the evidence of one who has repented, has trusted Christ for their salvation, there's a transformation, and they will have a desire and a heart to follow Jesus. If the desire and the heart is not there, they probably have not repented, they've not trusted Christ, they just want to continue doing their own thing and get their ticket to heaven. Now, this is hard preaching. But I find Jesus was preaching hard in this. When he says repent, so the three imperatives we're going to look at, but he begins by saying the time is fulfilled or the fullness of time has come. In other words, it's just the right time. All in God's purposes have been fulfilled and now God has sent His Son, the ultimation, the final destination, if you will, of salvation for mankind that had been lost. When His first... Hearers heard this, they understood what Jesus meant when He said the time is fulfilled because they had learned, they were well versed in the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew the prophets that had proclaimed to the nation of Israel that God was going to send Messiah. And He would be the one that would rescue and deliver His people and He would establish His kingdom. They understood very well when Daniel prophesied in chapter 9 verse 25 that Therefore, understand that from the going out of the Word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the Anointed One, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Daniel, as well as Isaiah, who had prophesied the forerunner of John the Baptist, they knew what Jesus meant when He said the time has come. The Anointed One is now here, the Messiah. And Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. You remember the story when Jesus was in Samaria with the woman at the well? And she's wanting to have this theological debate about how worship should be conducted. And Jesus said, listen, you can throw out that the window because the type of worshipers that the Father is seeking are those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. I don't care what the style is, what the manner is. If there's not spirit and truth, it is not worship that He doesn't accept. Amen? And Jesus responds to her when she says, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. And when He comes, He was tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Claiming, again, to be Messiah, the Anointed One. They were looking for a different kind of Messiah. 
They were looking for a different kind of deliverer, maybe a political, to overthrow the Roman Empire. But God had a completely different manner in which He was going to usher in His kingdom. Isn't it like God? You know, we always have our idea of the way God should do things. But He has a very different plan in mind. But when He does it, we know that He's done it. In Luke chapter 17, Luke records for us that Jesus was being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come. They were anticipating the kingdom. They are still anticipating the Messiah to come in Israel. This last week I saw a picture of, of above ground tombs that were laid out all on a mountainside overlooking the east side from, from Jerusalem because they believe still today that Messiah is still yet to come and Jews will pay their life savings to buy a place that they might be buried because they want to be one of the first ones resurrected. They're still looking for Messiah, but He's already come. Aren't you glad that He called you and you know Him? Jesus said the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, Jesus says. And the way that can be translated, not only in the midst of you, what Jesus was saying, is that the kingdom of God is not in the way that you thought it's going to be, but it is going to be in you. And he's making reference to the Holy Spirit when God would seal us by the Holy Spirit and give us the Holy Spirit different way, different plans. God had His. The disciples, He said to, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go around to follow them. But as the lightning flashes and the light and it lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until that day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven to destroy them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed." On that day, let one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Of course, he's making reference there to the fact that as Lot was fleeing Sodom and his wife was there, she turned around to look back, desiring where God had delivered her from. And she turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus says in verse 33, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. There seems to be some confusion here, right? Because Jesus is announcing that the, the kingdom has come. And yet in Luke's gospel account, he's, he's saying, but there, there's another day of the Son of Man. So which is it? Is this, is this kingdom coming? Did it come when Jesus came? And, and is it yet to come? And the fact is, both are true. You see, he, his kingdom was announced 
At the incarnation, when Christ came, God, the fullness of time had come. The kingdom was now being established, and yet there is a time when Jesus will establish His kingdom, and He will rule and reign literally on the earth. And so it's a has-been, and it is a yet-to-come. Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, he says this in chapter 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come. Can I take a sidebar here? It's God's time, not ours. Right? I want it now. Do it now. God says, listen, I've got everything in control. My time is the right time. And, and what you and I have to recognize is that it's not about me and it's not about you. It's all about Him. Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why was He born under the law? So that He might fulfill the requirements of the law because the law was given to show the righteousness of God and the demands that a holy God has for any human who has fallen and sinful to have relationship with Him. It's impossible to fulfill the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. Born under the law to redeem, to buy back those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, establishing His kingdom and rule and reign in our hearts. That's why we pray as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew Chapter 6, he said, your kingdom, pray this way, pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in this day, in this time, God is desiring to establish his kingdom through those who are his followers. Now, don't misunderstand me, as some would say, that man, once we get everything right through the church, then Jesus will come. Folks, that will never happen. We don't usher in His kingdom by, by getting good enough, getting all the act together. It's His prerogative to know when that is. And even Jesus does not know the day or the hour. But in the meantime, what Scripture teaches is that Christ lives His life through His church. That's you and I. And God, for, for whatever reason, I don't understand why He would want to use me and you. But He does. I might understand why I'd want to use you, but I can't understand why I'd want to use me. Right? He desires that where we are, His kingdom would be established. That He rules and reigns in our hearts. And that as we follow Him, we exercise His will where we are. You see, the kingdom has come, it's already and is yet to come. I was thinking about this idea of a kingdom. And we are not very familiar with it because we don't live in a culture that has a king, although some of us you'd think we did because we worship the throne in Britain, right? Every princess that comes along. But a kingdom has this. Maybe others, but three things I thought about. A kingdom, first of all, has to have a king. 
right? For it to be a kingdom. A, a kingdom has to have subjects, and a kingdom has to have territory. And when you think of a king, it's absolutely recognized that a king, if he is the king of a kingdom, then he has absolute sovereign authority. And so if he has fulfilled the role of king and he desires and he has a rightful place to be a sovereign king ruling in our hearts, the question that you and I need to answer is, is he sitting on the throne in my heart or do I have something else sitting there ruling my life? Remember the old Campus Crusade or crew now? Tracks that they would produce in the 70s and 80s, they, they had a had a heart there, and in the middle of the heart there was a throne. I tried to find a picture to put it on the PowerPoint, but I couldn't find it quick enough. And it was a throne there, and there were many things that were set on the throne. There were dollar bills, there were uh, girlfriends and jobs and occupations, all these kinds of things. And outside of that was Jesus. And the illustration we used to show that because He has declared He has full rights and authority in our lives to be king, that the only value, the only valid place for him to be sitting is on the throne of our hearts. And the question I have to ask today, is Jesus sitting on the throne in my heart? Are there areas in my life that I've said, you can have everything else, but you can't have this? Lord, I'm willing to, I'm willing to do the list. I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll even go Wednesday nights. Whatever it is, God, I'll read, I, I, I'll do all this stuff, but you can't have this. He says, no, I'm the king. I have rights to that. Let's look at these things that Jesus says. He says, first of all, the, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. By the way, this is a phrase that Jesus repeated over a hundred times in the Gospels. Do you think it has importance? And then he goes on to say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. The first thing he tells us to do, and I'm going out of order here, so if you're type A or OCD, don't get wigged out. But I want to talk about belief first. He, he's not saying if you just simply believe that I was. He's not even saying that if you believe that I'm going to come again. He's not saying that if you believe that if there's factual evidence to support that I had come and that there's even factual evidence to support the resurrection, then everything's okay. Notice the, the small preposition here. He says, if you believe in the gospel... Meaning that we have placed our trust in the message of the gospel. It's not some mental assent. It's not something that I would have learned. And if you were Catholic in catechism, or if you were a good Southern Baptist in RAs or GAs, that you knew all that stuff. But if you believe, trusted in the gospel. You know, we, it's easy to fit into a church culture. We realize that, right? And, and there have been many who have not believed in Christ and they have fit into a church culture. They, they can change their vocabulary. They can say the buzzword like fellowship, which means fried chicken and biscuits from Bojangles, right? Right? 
You can even be a Georgia Tech fan and, and get in, right? Oh. We can have the right social conventions, meaning we don't do this or we don't do that. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go out with women who do. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We can have all of that stuff right and never have believed in the gospel. We can have the right heritage. I, I cut my teeth in a Southern Baptist nursery, but that did not save me. My mother was a music minister. My dad was a deacon, but that didn't save me. Believe in the gospel. You see, one of the telltale marks of one believing in the gospel is that there is a radical change in their life. Part of the testimony of Amber and Alan who were just baptized this morning from those that know him, know them and they know each other, they would say there's been a radical change. Things are not the same. And it's not just that Actions, habits have changed. It's that there's a change of heart, there's a transformation, and there's a desire for more. James warns when he says, you believe that God is one? Good. You do well. Even the demons believe that, yet they shudder. So there's a believing in Christ, believing in the gospel. The next thing that I want us to look at is, he calls us to repent, and I've already stated, it's to turn from and toward. But one thing I want us to notice in this passage, and we're going to see it all through Mark, is that repentance and belief are closely bound together in Jesus' preaching and in the apostles' preaching as well. It's not the easy believism that we have manipulated to get more hands raised or more people to the altar. He calls us to repent. John Mark, are you saying that repentance equates salvation? No. But there is a turning from, there's a desire to turn from, too. And it's an imperative in believing in the gospel. Recorded for us in Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking and he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day till I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, even in his preaching, it's recorded in Luke, goes into more detail than Mark does. John the Baptist calls out and he says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, where there's true repentance, there will be fruit that's born in that. A pomegranate can't produce an apple. Somebody's going to come and correct me later that's a botanist and say, Well, you know what, actually, you know... Don't... <laughs> There's fruit that's born. And it begins in the heart. There's evidence of repentance there. 
was going through this and thinking, what are, what are some of the signs of, of repentance that have taken place? And, and can I tell you this, that this list that I'm going to share with you, uh, it, it's, it's not my own, some of it is, I've adapted, but it comes out of my own experience because there have been times in my life when I've repented and there are times in my life where I've just given God lip service. Can everybody say, me too, on unison, one, two, three, thank you. Here are the signs that I see. Number one is there's an earnestness taking seriously the commitment to turn away and turn towards. Whatever it may be. Whatever it might be, but there's an earnestness to turn away. It does not mean that we will always be successful in that and thank God for His forgiveness and His grace when we fail. There's an eagerness to, 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 to confess that the moment we recognize sin, whether it be an attitude or an action, we're quick to say, Lord, that was wrong. Forgive me. Restore me back to fellowship with you rather than hanging on to it. Well, you know what so-and-so did to me 20 years ago. I, I can forgive her in God's love, but I can't forgive her. You don't want to say your heart's hardened and you don't want to repent. That's what is really happening in that. I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> I get an indignation. I, indig, indignation. I, I can't stand my sin. Paul in chapter 7 of Romans where he's going through that anguishing time, the things that I know that I ought not do, I find myself doing. The things that I know that I ought to do, I, I don't do. There's an anguish there and there's a disdain. God, change me so that I might honor and glorify and magnify you. There's a fear, not of the consequences. I've seen people cry crocodile tears when they've gotten caught in the middle of it. And there's no fear. They're, they're, they're afraid that they're going to find out more to the story because they'll tell just enough. But there's a fear of a holy God. There's a longing for holiness. holiness. Jesus said, Blessed are those who do thirst and hunger after righteousness. David said, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. Lastly, I'd say making everything right that you possibly can. Humbling ourselves to admit wrong and admit fault. Lastly, he gives the imperative there that we're to follow him. I've spoken a lot about following Jesus. It simply means that we would follow him with a heart to be obedient to every single one of his commands. And the command that he starts with in that great commission is make disciples. We can talk about it until the cows come home, but until we start doing it, we ain't done nothing but had good talk. Amen? Now secondly, let's look at the radical effect of Jesus' teaching. Verse 16 on to 20. Let me just read it for you. I'm going to make this brief. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, Simon being Peter, as we know him. 
And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. You know those two that were mentioned as the sons of thunder? who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and they, and with the hired servants, and they followed him. The first thing that we recognize, not only in Mark's gospel account, but in all the other gospel accounts, was that there was immediate obedience to what Jesus was calling them to do. It's not a compromise. It's not, well, let me take care of this first. As a matter of fact, he rebuked that in another point in the gospel. Let me go bury my dead father first. No, 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 no. If you can be my disciple, you follow me right now. Not until I finish doing all the things I want to do. Not until I finish sowing my wild oats. Well, let me wait until I retire. No, he says, follow me now. The second thing I notice about them is that, that there is a... There is a response to the call of God that I would almost go as far as to say it is irresistible. Don't get wigged out. I'm not becoming a hyper-Calvinist on you. But there is a call from God, and when you know the call from God, you know it and you respond to it. Follow me, and immediately they, they left their business. A guy in sandals, and as the pictures show, a beard and long hair and a robe, maybe a sack, comes up and he says, Hey, leave that lucrative business you got there and come and follow me. Sure. Follow me. They did. Let me wrap this up. We know the 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 blessed benefits of salvation. But as I thought about this idea of following Jesus, I thought about how radically their lives were altered. Think about it. If you've ever seen pictures of, of this area where it's not a big place. I mean, it's a small podunk town. Those of you that are going to Israel this summer, we're going to see that. And Jesus says... Follow me. Their, their life was limited to that area. I can remember when I left for, for boot camp, I had been no further than North Carolina, no further than Birmingham, Alabama, and no further than Daytona Beach, Florida. And all of a sudden, from a little small town, but, but I think about this, their, their lives were completely changed. The margins of their world were opened up when we... See what took place in their life. John, not only blessed salvation, but the beauty of following Jesus was that John later went well beyond the horizons that he may have had there in Galilee, and he later becomes what was known as the Bishop of Ephesus. Peter goes to Rome. Andrew. Church historians tell us that he made it as far as Russia. What I'm saying is that following Jesus opens up our world. I used to describe 
my relationship to Jesus after I got born again that being a believer, a follower of Jesus is like having an e-ticket at Disney World. Anybody remember that? I can't use that anymore. They don't have e-tickets got you on Space Mountain. It's an adventure. My heart aches for believers that just want to have enough of marginal Christian life and never get in the flow of following Jesus. It's exciting. Casey, when I think about your life, as you shared with me, and I see your testimony on your website, the limits of your life at that time were being trapped in a sex industry at 18, being manipulated and exploited for other people's purposes. Your life, had Jesus not come in and radically changed your life, may have not been going on to this day. In case you think about your life and many other people's lives, after they've come to know Jesus, not just knowing Him, but following Him, saying, whatever you want from me, Lord, I'll do it. God, I'm, I'm willing. And what He may want is you to stay right where you are. But He may say, here's where I want you to go. There's a beauty in salvation. But there's a glorious ride in following Jesus. You see the difference there? Where are you this morning? Are you following Jesus? And that looks for you what it looks for you. You know what He's called. You know what He's prompted to. Some of you know the opportunities you missed because you didn't. It's never too late. Jesus says, follow me. Did some time ago you say a simple prayer? And just thought that was all there was to it? Just got my ticket, but you know there was really no repentance and turning from and turning towards and putting all your trust in Jesus. Maybe you need to respond that way this morning and put your trust in Jesus. I don't know where you are. I, I know where I've been this week and I know the responses I've had to make in preparing this message this week. And I believe that any time that we're challenged with the Word of God, we've got to respond in some way. My old mentor, Dr. Long, used to say, you're going to get mad, glad, or sad, but you need to get one of the three. What's Jesus saying to you this morning? I'm going to ask John to come and lead. In a Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.